welcome everyone and thank you for coming this evening for our quick little chat on making applications. I don't know how many of you know the fabulous Florence Chen. Um, fabulous is actually her uh, official Christian name, <laughs> uh, first name. Um, Florence has been at the bar for eight years. Eight years? Mm -hmm. It's a long time. Uh, before that, she was an associate to two Supreme Court justices. Uh, Florence has a uh, very extensive, wide commercial practice. She does a fair bit of tax work as well. Uh, she is a go-to counsel for lots of law firms on lots of hard technical things. She works very, very hard. She's very precise, which makes her an excellent counsel. And this is a fabulous topic for her uh, to be chatting to you all about with some minor input from me. I'm just old, so I'm here to, <laughs> to um, add in that demographic. <laughs> uh, so thank you all again. Um, now, we would like this to be uh, interactive to the extent possible, so we don't really want to be speaking at you. Feel free to interrupt, ask questions as we go along. It's all fine. This is all going to be rather informal, despite the fact that we're both wearing jackets and I have time. Um, so, uh, if we could start, please. Yeah, so I thought um, I'd just talk generally about some of the resources that I find really useful as a first port of call uh, when thinking about bringing any application. Uh, so the first one actually would be uh, the Cureless uh, Proctor Back to Basics. Does, it, does anyone have this? It's 50 bucks, it's from Cureless. It was written by Kyle, Kylie Downs, GCS, Harana, Ben Watts. And it's pretty much an, uh, an article about everything you need to know about interlocutory applications. For example, it just provides the basis of a summary judgment. Uh, remember what kind of affidavit material you need, what rule is it under, and what is the seminal case. So it's a really good refresher, or if you've never seen an interlocutory application of, of a particular kind, uh, this is a great first step. So I, I highly commend that book to you. Great investment. The other thing is the Uniform Civil Procedure Queensland textbook. It's a bit out of date now, it's 2016, but what it is, is it's um, an abridged version of these commentaries that you might have seen, the loosely service. It's been updated, uh, it's Queensland-based. So, uh, for example, it just goes to, uh, if you're doing a summary judgment, you go to that section and it's got, uh, summarises almost all of the relevant cases and it'll even give you um, a little... Uh, in brackets, you know, this is a summary judgment where the defendant was successful on X point. So super helpful in terms of you don't have to read uh, 10 cases. You can kind of work out very quickly if um, a case is helpful for you. So I highly recommend that to you as well. What else do you look at? What other materials? There's also the obviously good rules. There's UCPR, the federal court rules. Uh, they can be a bit uh, dense. And so again, having something like a loosely service, a commentary that's available in LexisNexis, that kind of helps you. What else? There's also the uh, practice directions, and those differ from every level of court, uh, federal as well as state. The state has had a recent revamp. Um, so the one for the Supreme Court is actually very practical. So it's the practice direction of 12 and 22, and it actually sets out the day of the um, hearing. So things like, how a callover is undertaken, um, how do you exchange materials, when are you supposed to exchange the materials. So it's actually really helpful and restrictive in that sense. But there's also one for the district court and magistrate's court. So we'll highlight some of those um, useful points from the practice directions as well as we go along. 
Uh, what we've provided to you on your seats is um, just a checklist that I've knocked up, uh, things that I think about uh, at the various points in time. So uh, broadly, it's before the hearing date, so even before you start preparing the materials, what are you thinking about? Followed by on the actual day of the hearing, and then after the hearing. And so hopefully this checklist uh, provides you a good framework, but also uh, calms those nerves, uh, ensures that you've covered everything, you've thought of everything, you've prepared to go to court. And so we'll run through each of those um, points. So before the hearing day, uh, the first thing really is to check whether an application is even suitable. Um, an application on the applications list should take less than two hours. And um, must. Must. <laughs> it must. And we've seen it go badly. Yes. Uh, you know, if you're at a callover and you tell a judge, Your Honor, I assure you it will take two hours. And they go, Okay, I think that's, you know, a bit of a light estimate, but you go right ahead. And they'll stop you at two, two hours. And they go, You either go to the end of the list, so you're waiting around the courthouse uh, for the rest of the day, or they'll send you to the civil trial list. And so that's the distinction. So if it's, if it's in interlocutory application, but it's going to take more than two hours, it should be allocated a half day or a day on the civil trial list. So don't get to the day of, of the hearing and then work that out. The other thing is uh, you can't have uh, major issues of credit or substantial cross-examination because that really should, again, be um, allocated to a civil trial list as well. And there's no way of right to cross-examine you need leave, and you should have assumed that leave will be given. So you've got to be careful about all of those things. Yeah. And there are obvious consequences you find if you've filed an application that should never have been brought in the applications list, um, you put your client at risk of an adverse cost order. And depending on the jurisdiction you're in, you may, in fact, put your firm at risk of an adverse cost order, mm. depending on the view the judge takes, again, depending on the court hearing. So they are not, they sound simple, but they can potentially become very important things. Yeah, I think that's something that uh, us as barristers see sometimes. We get a brief that says, oh, could, could you just appear on an interlocutory application tomorrow? And you have a look at the documents and you go, whoa. <laughs> no one's actually thought about should this in fact be on the applications list and things like that. That's even aside from uh, having a look at the law list and seeing who's in applications. And, um, How many matters of this? Um, and never, never, ever say 30 minutes just to slot it in when you know it's going to take two hours. There are actually rules about your ethical obligations to give proper time estimates. Mm. Some judges take that as they should very seriously. In fact, this practice direction now um, requires that if council is not, that the council uh, identifies the time estimate. Because I think they realise that uh, maybe some clerk is just at the, at the registry that says, how long would this matter take? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the second point is preconditions. So one of the worst things to do is to turn up to court, have all your materials ready, and then ask the judge to make a decision and then find out that you haven't satisfied the preconditions for the interlocutory application. So what types is that? Uh, that's things like um, a Rule 44 letter. Like, when do you need that? But also, when don't you need that? A lot of people, um, the common practice is to have a Rule 444 letter um, for, for most applications that they're going to bring in where they say there's been maybe um, some issues with pleadings or things like that. Uh, but in fact, you only really need it for particulars um, and a failure to comply with uh, rules. 
Um, you don't actually need it for strikeouts or summary judgments, uh, but that's a technical point. Usually, I think people try and give advanced warnings about those types of involuntary applications. Um, but technically, you don't need it. Um, other things are things like undertakings um, as well as financial information. So that's things for injunctions or security costs. Um, turning up without actually being able to say, well, did you ask the other side for an undertaking, not to do X? Did you ask for some financial information to find out if that person has means to satisfy a security cost application? Um, and a judge won't be very happy if you haven't done those things. Right. The next thing is then the preparation of the materials. Just get it right. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you've done it for the type of application before, always start at the beginning. Think about it carefully. No case is identical. No issue is identical. And if you approach each matter with that mindset, you're less likely to make the mistake of cookie cutting something from another application that's irrelevant or wrong, which is worse. Uh, think about the rules that apply. Uh, think about cases that apply and, and deal with it that way. I mean, the applications list is busy. The judges have got lots of things to deal with. You've got a short window of time to persuade the court to do what it is you want to do uh, and the result you want for your client, which is what you're there for. Uh, if you turn up with sloppy, thick, irrelevant, messy material, you're less likely to be persuasive. So. That first step of getting the material done is not just a, you know, a cookie cutting exercise. It's actually important. It's important to get it right. It's important to have the right material in there and think about the order in which you want things said. It's a lot of what we do now in advocacy is written. The judges all work hard. They read as much as they can before the dates of the, the day of the application. If you've written it in a style and a manner and in an order that makes it logical and persuasive, you've given the client another advantage. There's nothing wrong with doing it that way. And it's not necessarily right to do everything strictly chronological, depending on what it is you want. And, uh, you know, for example, it might be that there's a real critical matter that that you really want to highlight for the court, think about whether that can be effectively the first thing in the affidavit rather than page 85. The judge will give up reading it at page six. So think about those things. It won't always work, you can't always do it, but at least turn your mind to it when you do it in the draft. Because mm. to say, what is assumed is competence. And, and that your affidavit material, your applications tick the boxes. What Nick is then also saying is that it is an opportunity to be persuasive and you need to be thinking about, can I be more persuasive? Can I be strategic in my submissions or my affidavit material? And so that um, is the difference between a competent lawyer and what is considered maybe a brilliant strategist or a really barrister or things like that. So things to think about. Um, and so when you're thinking from first instance, you know, you're being quickly asked, oh, you know, um, can you run down and do an urgent injunction, you know, prepare all the materials, you've got this. Um, don't think that you have to 
creative from scratch. Um, a lot of firms have internal pre-sentences, but if you don't have that, look at the cases. The cases have um, previously made orders for injunctions. Um, they'll cite what, what the remedy is or the, the sections that are Well, in fact, it's better than that. Our commercial list in the Supreme Court a number of years ago uh, required all of the material to be filed uh, electronically. So all of the applications, the affidavits, the submissions mm. are there in PDFs. That is a fantastic resource because, as a general proposition, the high end of the profession are in the commercialist. So you get to read submissions that have been done by some very talented and experienced practitioners. And you should take advantage of that resource. It's free, it's not hard to find. So does everyone understand that? So if a matter is placed on the commercial list, you can go to, say, the Supreme Court and go to the e-court e-files. And so as long as you know what the name of one of the parties are or the file, court file number, you can look up the file, access it electronically, and next to every single document, it'll have a PDF symbol, and so you can click into it. So if you read a case about, say, misleading and deceptive conduct, and you think, oh, my gosh, this is on point with something that I'm trying to look at, if you know that it's on the commercial list, you can go to the e-court file and look up the submissions. You can look up the pleadings. Um, you can look at the affidavit material so that you can maybe uh, learn how to do it from the best. Because the case don't tell you. I can't remember if the case in the head don't tell you if it's on the yeah. commercial list or not. But even if it doesn't, the commercial judges are, for example, Justice Jackson, Justice Bond, Justice Dalton, yeah. Bradley. Um, Bradley. You can, you'll be able to tell from the, the name of the judge. Yeah. For the justice, whether it's likely to be there or not. And I, I, I use it as a fabulous resource. Sometimes if you just search Carmel, you've <laughs> 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 run, run every single interlocutory application on the side and you've got silks arguing it, defending it. Um, it it's amazing. Uh, what else do you need to know in terms of material? So that was more like applications, affidavit material. Um, know if uh, your release is final or interlocutory, because that, that dictates what kind of affidavit material you can put on. If it's interlocutory, you can do it on information and belief. But if it's final, you can seek final uh, relief on the applications list. Then you know that the affidavit material can't be on information and belief. It's so embarrassing uh, to see solicitors or barristers turn up to the applications list, try and file and uh, read to uh, leave to read and file an affidavit, and the other side objects and objects on the basis that it is uh, on information release and what they're trying to seek final um, final relief because uh, that means that your client can't claim that cost of preparing that affidavit. It's a bit embarrassing. You didn't know, um, so just be careful about that. And the technicalities. Uh affidavits are important. They go sometimes to the question whether you can or can't make its contents admissible. So be careful about that as well. Think about the language you're using um, in drafting it. If it's an affidavit by somebody not you, uh, it's their affidavit, not yours. So make sure that it reads that it's actually their affidavit. Judges know when lawyers written something as opposed to a lay person. So you've got to be careful about that. Uh, and again, the, the, the language that you're using is important um, because, um, what's a good example? I should have thought about this before. Um, secondary evidence is, is a legitimate objection. So if you're exhibiting a document 
to the affidavit, the text of the affidavit is a general proposition you should not recite it. It should just exhibit it. So on the state of percent, here's here it is. What you don't want is half a day spent working half a day. But the first part of the application being someone taking correct objections because you approached on on the wrong basis. And even things like the information and belief, you've got to identify that. If you're doing something on information and belief, the source of the information and belief must be identified and in a way that makes it obvious. If it's not a proper objection, you could be taken about it. And don't put in triple, quadruple hearsay. And if a person doesn't know at all, and not even on information and belief, don't throw it in just in case it slips through. That's generally a risk for disaster. Yeah. And then, so that's just a confident affidavit. What are we thinking about um, for an affidavit? How could it be brilliant? Think about how it's going to be used in the court. So just make sure you have things like all of these that are paginated, that the pagination is legible. Um, Pages are not missing. Yeah, they're not upside down. It's amazing. And, and then make sure, you know, it's all witnessed properly and everything like that. You'd be surprised how often those little things don't happen properly and it becomes the focus of the time mm. judge's wrath. Mm. And when you're there <laughs> seeking a discretion, get it right. Yeah. yeah. And don't bulldog clear an affidavit. That is the judge's pay. Uh, the next thing is uh, what about submissions? Um, often they're requested for in advance of the day of hearing, but also the district court practice direction requires that it be provided by 4 p.m. the day before the hearing. So don't get caught up thinking, oh, I'll work up the submissions the night before and hand it up to the judge on the other side at the day of the hearing. The practice direction of the district court, I think, is at least 4 p.m. the day before, and the Supreme Court is two days before. Yes, yeah, possible. But think about that because a uh, recent example of application I was briefing, we filed the submissions about two days before the hearing. It might have been three days. Uh, our opponents waited until the day of. We turned up, the judge plainly read our submissions and it just all went our way. So the tactical advantage of doing it on time in accordance with the practice directions should not be overlooked. And we're not in the 1970s, 80s anymore where surprise is a big thing. That's kind of good. It's an old tactic that doesn't necessarily take them away. And I'm not a fan of it. You've got a good point, you've got a point, you don't. Well, then you just don't. So embrace your case <laughs> and have faith in it. Yeah. Uh, and that's, sorry, just talking about embracing your case. Uh, if it's a hard point and it's a difficult point, think about acknowledging that. Not, not in a way that says, oh, you know, we know it's bad, but we're going to lose. That's not, that's not very persuasive. But sometimes acknowledging a difficulty in writing immediately takes the, judge, the heat out of the judge because the judge will work out pretty quickly that it's a difficult point. If you acknowledge it up front, but nevertheless, this is why we should win, it, it's an amazing how often that works, both in written form and orally. But, but I'm a big fan of doing that in writing. Mm. And again, if it's a very hard point, and obviously a hard point, making that concession without giving up the point helps. And concession is probably not the right word. Mm. You're not conceding it, you're acknowledging it. But you can do that in a way that doesn't say I should lose. 
Judge has been around a lot longer than us, perhaps like as long as me, because I am, as I said before, <laughs> old. Um, but they know what they're doing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then just to round up the topic of materials, thinking about you know what it's like to be in court, just make sure you have sufficient copies of everything. Um, sometimes it's great to have additional copies for uh, the judge, to have working copies, you just never know. If you give up. It says you need a working copy of, say, an outline submission that you're handing up. So you always have two copies of an outline, one for the white file, one for the judge. But um, sometimes if the materials are quite dense, it's great to provide a nice little folder for the judge. They love that. Um, tabbed, um, all printed, all in one place, have a nice index. It just makes it so much easier rather than them working off 10 different documents that came out of the um, file that they can't write on because they're the file versions. So. And, and another practical tip that I urge you all to think about is if you know who your opponents are and, and assume time permits, identify to them if you're the applicant that you're, even if you're a respondent, it doesn't really matter, but one of you taking the initiative of saying, we will have a bundle of the cases for the judge. These are the 10 cases we're going to refer to, and these are the extracts for legislation. If you've got a couple of cases you want to refer to in addition to those, tell us we'll put them in the bundle so that the court's given one case bundle. It's just imagine how irritating it would be if you've got three parties in front of you They've all got their own version of the cases and they're largely the same. The, the judges sort of sit there working out which bundle they've got to go to. It's a small thing, but it's a convenient thing. And again, if you're seen to be taking the lead in that, every little bit helps. Yeah. I was just sitting there. That's good for the environment. Talking about taking the lead, I was just in a commercial review this morning and one of the, you know, there were three parties and one of the barristers had, um, consolidated what each party had a view on each of the different orders. And so it had the orders and then said all parties agreed in green and then, you know, oh, defendant disputes for the date, sort of this one otherwise agreed. And because they'd gone to that additional uh, taking of the lead, um, making it easier for the judge to have a look at, um, he was on the speed, he's kind of directing things um, and we ended up using his draft order as the base. Uh, and so strategic things like that, um, uh, are useful and so you should always think about that you know sometimes you feel like oh you're over preparing or something like that but sometimes it just is strategic and you seem like you're 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 competent you're running the show and judges can see that the next point is about service um that's just pretty much under the rules but just to be aware of it things like that um you know things like affidavit material should be sent or served three days in advance of a hearing, and if you don't make that cutoff, well then you could be up for cost of an adjournment if the other side um, take issue with it. You know, if you, you're two days uh, before the interlocutory application, they might say, oh, well, this is you know, all very unfair. We need time to respond to this material. We didn't have sufficient time for some reason. Um, we want, we need an adjournment, and it was caused by your late filing of you know, five affidavits, so we should get our costs. So you just want to know under the rules when particular documents need to serve applications, uh, affidavits in particular. And think about when you, you should have in your back pocket an affidavit of service, depending on context. If no one turns up on the other side to approve service, you can't look from the bar table, you need an affidavit. So 
have it ready just in case. You don't need it all the time to solicit them. Oh, actually, you're going to do a solicitable record. Mm. You might need to read it. So think about when you need it. Mm. Uh, not often required, but on the occasion that you're doing, you haven't done it, you're going to feel a little bad. Yeah, yeah. You've, You've worked, worked out your involved application and then there's a bit of because one of the parties didn't turn up and you don't know why. And you can't prove it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the next point is pretty short, it's just the e-court file. So every time I go to court, I print the updated e-court file because it gives you a list of indexable documents. So in fact, when you refer to documents in an, in, in an application, you should be saying, um, you know, affidavit of X, court document number five. Yeah. So you'll just need that. And you also know, uh, also from the court file, you'll know what documents have and haven't been put on uh, the index um, in case someone's trying to sneak in an application that you are unaware of. It also identifies when it's going to the next be listed. And so if there's some sort of ex parte application that's being made by the other side, you might find out about it or um, the listing date might be wrong. And your list of materials should identify the material you're going to read and that should be done by reference to the e-court document number. But also think about the order in which you're reading things. So if you're there on the topic application, that's document number one. The principal affidavit is number two. If you refer to previous orders of the court, that goes in. If your submission is referred to the pleadings, you read it. So in effect, whatever is mentioned in your submissions has to be read. If it's not in your submissions, you don't waste the court's time by reading it because the associate has to pull out everything that you've said to the judge in a read. And I mean, people do it. They, mm. they, they read everything and they're actually only relying on one document. Again, judges get very irritated by that. If you're asking for the exercise of discretion, you don't want to be irritated with the person you're asking to do that. Yeah. Uh, the next point is just about conferring with the opposition. That's pretty obvious. Things that you want to be talking about is whether or not you can get consent orders. Um, or at least identifying what, where are the areas of dispute. Um, other things you want to be talking about is, uh, is someone going to turn up or not? And if, if you know, another party tells you that they're not going to turn up, then uh, there won't be an, an adjournment of an application because the third party isn't there. You have... Oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. You've got an email that just says um, they're not turning up. And don't forget when you're speaking to your opponents to either describe it as uh, without prejudice, or describe it as without prejudice and subject to instructions, do not, do not say just between us. That has no legal <laughs> anything. It's just, it's meaningless. So characterise it correctly and make sure it is expressly said. Otherwise, you're at risk of things going very badly for you. It might be, you might be making an admission that you didn't mean to make. Uh, and again, that just between us conversation, uh, I know other people have different views about it, but it is literally meaningless. It has no legal status at all. Don't get sucked into it if someone says it to you. Well, you can if you want, but <laughs> I recommend against it. Uh, and then the last thing for um, before the hearing is just print out the daily orders. So um, everyone turns up because uh, during the call over, obviously, the judges will start allocating the matters and it's much easier to just write it onto the applications list of this, this matter is number one, this matter is number two, this is not for X. 
who delivered the tikka masala, so that if you're waiting outside the courtroom um, and you know that, uh, say, O'Sullivan QC Casey is in a particular matter, then you'll know um, that once O'Sullivan walks out, you're at uh, matter number five. And so you can kind of gauge um, when you're wrong. Like that. Also, to just double check that your matter is in fact listed. Sometimes it, it might not have been listed, there might be a registry issue. Um, better to know the day before than um, not. Yes. And uh, another practical tip uh, if you're OCD like I am, and I suspect you are because you've got a law degree. Um, I like everything packed and ready the night before. I don't like doing it the morning of because it's just don't know what's going to happen in the morning of. Uh, I have a habit, and this tip came from, I'm pretty sure, the Honourable Walter Sofinoff, something I embrace when I came to the bar. A folder with the stuff for the judge, a folder for my stuff, a separate folder for each opponent, and it's all done, ready, and in the right order. So that when I'm at the bar table, I'm not doing this, I'm just doing that. And that, that smoothness does a couple of things. One, it makes you look like you know what you're doing. Uh, two, it will help calm your nerves because it's just so mechanical and it's just happening. It's all very easy. And it's a simple thing to do. Um, and I found that a very helpful too. Have your bag packed. Don't do it on the did anyone have any questions about uh, anything that you think you should be doing or things you shouldn't do before the day of hearing? Or we're happy to move on? Cool. Uh, so on the day of the hearing, um, hopefully you've prepared everything so uh, you're already pro and uh, But what do you do uh, once you rock up to the courthouse, you've um, sat in front of the application to the courtroom, um, best thing is to do, uh, this, so this is just a checklist, I'm sure you've all done it quite a few times, but this is just to make sure that um, you can read this checklist before you go so you feel very comfortable about going to X, Y, Z, and then I've done all the things that I need to do when you can be thinking about substantive law issues in your head, not worrying about if you've forgotten something. So you find that the representatives on the other side, hopefully, uh, exchange any materials, confer, see if there's anything else that can be agreed on, any late instructions. Um, you need to think of the time estimate because at the call letter, that'll be the one thing that the judge wants to know about. Um, so uh, find out about that. Or it's very good if you can say to the judge, oh, Your Honor, we've got consent orders, except we, have, we need an argument's cost. Uh, so 10 minutes. And so then the judge might actually uh, bump your matter up early because they go, oh, it's just a cost argument. We can knock that out with the adjournments. Um, Whereas if you're stuck, maybe even as a junior source, if you're stuck with, uh, we'll hear these five matters and then everything else by seniority, you will be there all day. <laughs> so in that sense, uh, there's great benefit for you to narrow the issues, make sure you've got a short introductory application, that kind of thing. Uh, other things, appearance slip, just make sure you've got that. Uh, and then for the call over. So like I mentioned, this Supreme Court uh, practice direction walks you through it, so that's all really helpful. Um, things that people do badly, they try and go into the nitty-gritty detail about the interlocutory application, or they try and give their appearances when all the judge is looking for is a time estimate. Yeah, so full of respondents, 45 minutes, that's it. 5%, yeah. Unless the judge asks you for some more detail. Yeah. Which sometimes happens if they've read the material and they think the application is dodgy. You'll find out about that pretty quickly. <laughs>
Yeah. And then uh, just as, soon, as I mentioned, you have the data lawless, you write on it, um, the allocations, and just be careful if they say that it's um, a short matter is usually they say something like short matters are under 10 minutes, um, then at least five long matters in this order, and then everything else by seniority. Then you've got to eyeball that courtroom. Uh, to know who's more senior uh, than the other people. Is your barrister more junior or more senior than X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. And don't forget that the ball just because the parties may have agreed on the outcome, if it requires the exercise of discretion, it's not for parties. So don't forget that you can't consent to it. You can tell the court that it's, it's not contested, but it's subject to discretion. So remember to say that. For a member to communicate to the court, you know it's up to the judge, not not the parties. That is a hate of theirs. They're it like, is. then it's not by consent, is it? Yeah. 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 Um, also, just really basic things about um, you know bar table etiquette. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about it, but just I put a checklist just to hopefully uh, remind yourself about it. Um, usually, it's seniority as you're looking at the bar table from right to left. Sometimes the crown or the prosecutors always sit on the right. So if you're a bit uncertain, you can hang back and you can let the other parties move forward. Um, if there's a silk, they tend to take the right hand of the bar table. Um, don't stand while other people are talking. That's, um, it's very rude. Yeah. So if you're addressing your opponent, you should be sitting down. If an objection is being taken, you sit. That's the etiquette. And the reason for that is so the judge knows it all okay. If three people are standing, who's the judge going to look at to know who to talk to? It, it is that high to find with almost a high risk at the bar table. Mm. And it's not some point of rule, there's actually a practical reason for it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, you'll give your appearances in order, usually seniority or again by the bar table. Um, you'll hand up the materials and just make sure when you hand up the materials, you hand, usually hand up all the materials. So even things like draft orders, good to put them up, up front. Um, so you'll hand up the submissions, uh, you know, a bundle of authorities and draft orders so that you're not making the court staff walk back and forth and, oh, here's my submission and here's the case already. And then when, when, once you get to the end, then you hand up draft orders. Sometimes they, it's just neater to hand it up all in one go. And also, about that. Sometimes it's not appropriate to hand up the order right, yeah. because it might be viewed as uh, a bit presumptuous. So think about it, don't just do it. Mm. And the, the terminology is um, my, I, I read, not my I read, you've got the right to read it. So you say, I read, you identify what you're reading, and if it's by way of the list of material, you can say so. Uh, I have copies for your honour. My hand up to you together with a copy of a bundle of authorities. It's a joint bundle for your honest convenience. Would you like a working copy of the pleadings or something if you do? We've got a copy of that. Do all that up front, but careful with the terminology. It's got to be correct so the judge knows that you know what you're doing. Mm, definitely. Uh, and then once you hand up all of this material, just check with the judge uh, if they have had an opportunity to read it, because you said them the day before or not. Um, some judges like to have the silence of just reading the materials. They might even adjourn for 5, 10, 15 minutes to do that. Some judges just like you to address them and they'll be taking some materials they can do very quickly and they can do it on the fly. So um, always ask about that. Um, sometimes an elevator pitch is always really good to say, Your Honor, this is an interlocutory application for summary judgment. 
the reason uh, my client is seeking this relief is because of X, Y, Z. So you set it up right from the beginning uh, why the judge should be giving you the relief. And they go, oh, yeah, that does sound like reasons why I should give um, someone the judgment. Uh, so just a nice little elevator pitch. That elevator pitch is also sometimes good for the caller because sometimes the judge will say, well, what's your matter about? And then you can say, you're on about this, this, and this. So you kind of need that. Um, don't fumble there. And a habit I've gotten into at the bar table is, uh, and this came from one of the judges suggested, and I thought it was a great idea. You can buy a little plastic um, hard folder things that you can sit on the bar table to put your folders into, and it keeps everything uh, straight and there, and you're not fumbling or looking for stuff. And you can see it's fine when you're trying to use it friendly. And another thing, if you're um, uh, more than average height, uh, I take another lectern with me, a little glass, or one that I sit on the bar table. Because you're going to be there for a while. I think I would get maybe it's an age thing, but my back starts to hurt. And, and I don't like squinting at stuff, so I, I have a, a, another lectern to put on top. And another thing which you young people find funny, trust me, as you get older, you'll embrace this with both hands. Print your notes with a big font <laughs> so you're not sitting there squinting at a size 12. I do mine at about 17. And I, even with these glasses, it just makes it much easier. I've never had that problem with the lectern being too low. <laughs> but I'm not game to bring my own little step. <laughs> <laughs> I've just been told, don't hide behind the lectern. Actually, interestingly, because I am short, what I do is I push the lectern to the side and I angle it so that the judge can see me and can see everything and um, I have the lectern doesn't. So the lectern isn't blocked, so I'm not like this. I'm not blocked by it. Um, I just turn it to the side. So that's my tip. Um, then what happens at the end of the... Oh, just oh, yeah. during the hearing, listen to the judge, listen to the cues, answer the questions, answer it directly. Don't say I'll deal with that later when you have no intention of dealing with it later for a couple of reasons. The judges will know that you did that. And the next time you turn up, they just won't believe you. And as I heard Chief Justice say recently, um, I'm not going to get this right or say it as beautifully as she said it. When you're a legal practitioner, having a, a good reputation is all that matters. Yeah and not having a good reputation is all that matters. And all the little things you do in court get noticed. You start building a reputation from the ground up. If you're one of those advocates, uh, solicitor advocate counsel doesn't matter. If you're someone who says you're gonna do something and you don't, they notice it, they'll know it. Um, address the court, be polite to the court, even if the, uh, the tone may be something that you are uncomfortable with, your job is there to advocate for your client. Uh, more often than not, it's just the judge testing the waters, pushing against you, um, and you should be brave and respond. And as I said before, embrace your case. Hard or easy, embrace it and be prepared to argue it and deal with it. And think about the hard questions. So this is something we should say earlier. Think about the hard questions you're going to get and have an answer prepared. Uh, it'll it'll come out of your mouth quicker and easier if you've done that and you'll sound like you know what you're doing. 
which isn't just an ego thing, it's a persuasive tool. You're able to answer immediately and um, eloquently, you, you elevate the prospect of you succeeding, particularly in hard enough. Uh, then what happens once you've fabulously uh, fought the case, you think you're on a winner, and the judges will make a decision, could be reserved, could be X10, um, or orders as per draft, hopefully, and just uh, agree with you. That's all the usual things. Costs, super important. Um, you should be ready to argue it on the spot. Um, and also, um, no indemnity costs. So usually this is pulled on. Don't happen as a matter of course. 
So often um, you'll get the judgment and that's it. Um, it. You'll have to write to the course now, uh, the course now to the list manager. It used to be scc.orders. Um, now if you write to the list manager, you ask for a sealed copy. They then put it in the registry for you to pick up. Uh, but you have to ask for it and it takes a day or two. When do you need it? It's usually for enforcement purposes. If there's money owed under the judgment and you need to actually start enforcement proceedings in the magistrate's court. That's right. Or, um, and also what you want to be ensuring is that your client complies with the orders and that if there are any undertakings that were given throughout the hearing, that those undertakings are um, actually completed. So things like maybe you didn't have the original affidavit, you give an undertaking that the original affidavit will be filed at a later date, make sure um, that's actually done, things like that. Um, and then also, obviously, you might think about appeals. So that's, you know, um, just know the 28 days, uh, you've got to bring your appeal. Um, if it's against the exercise of discretion, remember how difficult that is, not easy. Yeah. Uh, the test is not uh, whether the Court of Appeal or the High Court thinks they would have landed on a different result. That's not the test. You've got to demonstrate, um, I'm not going to mm. but, you know, so wrong that no reasonable decision maker would have come mm. to that. Yeah, that's the time test. Her will be overcoming. Very difficult. Yeah, the house king decision. Yeah. Yeah. So, very difficult. So, even if you're angry, you know, maybe security costs, uh, costs were ordered against your client, very, very difficult to um, appeal uh, these kinds of interlocutory discretionary decisions. Yes. Well, that was all we wanted to talk about. Uh, and now that we've got a little checklist, but did anyone else have any questions or have a great anecdote where you saw something go spectacularly wrong? We love them. Awesome. My style would be to apologise, correct the record, and identify what the correct thing is. Um, even if I make a submission and the judge says, what about this? I mean, at, on occasion I've said, oh, I hadn't thought about that. That's actually a really good point. But, and then either respond to it or accept it. And, and move on. Mm. Yeah, I'm always of the school of thought of always just trying to correct the record, even if we've moved on. So, say, for example, uh, you read a passage of a case and said, oh, case stands as its proposition. And then you know, someone says, that's, you, know, you just read the following paragraph, it, it'll actually say that's not right. But you wouldn't want to be thought to mislead the court. Um, and, and so I would, you know, uh, when it's appropriate, pop up and say, oh, and you're on, I could be on to this paragraph of that decision. I'll just also bring your honor's attention to the following paragraph. So it, it's not said as law. Just on that, with cases, and this has actually happened where my opponent cited the case for clarity of a proposition. I read the case, and in fact, what was cited against me was the court reciting the losing side submission. And then rejecting it, but the bit about rejecting it wasn't there. Read the authorities. Don't assume that what's 
being put against you is correct. Check to make sure that it's still the law. And you yourself must be very careful that you don't make that type of mistakes. Remember what I said before about reputation. That's really, really bad. Um, another tip, if the legislation uses a particular phrase, you use that phrase, don't use different language. The High Court has reminded us over and over again not to do that. That's really important. And some of the judges will chip you for changing the language because I think if you're trying to slip one past them by using different different terminology. Um, if you're giving the effect of correspondence and not being precise about it, you should say so because you don't want to leave the court with the impression that you're asserting something with precision when in fact you're saying loosely you should for, for the correctness and for fairness reasons and for reputational reasons make it clear that that's what you're doing. Again, you don't want to develop the reputation as a legal practitioner who will say anything because ultimately that will affect your client's position because just want to believe you. And for barristers, that's been a reason why some barristers maybe haven't gotten silk or didn't get silk earlier because maybe they've said something in court or that's, you know, you're known as that person who flies too close to the sun and it's just not a good reputation. You know, there's, there's arguing, putting your best head um, forward for your client and then there's, there's maybe looseness. looseness. Yeah. And we're all black little lawyers, no one likes to be too loose. <laughs> Um, just with academic material, um, I think of you were doing your exhibits, um, two different views. So, for example, you've got an, uh, an email attaching a letter, and then there's other emails and link that chain of emails. Um, on one view, I would tell you attach everything because you don't want to show that, you don't want to admit things that the judge might think, for example, oh, well, why did you leave off the rest that? You've got chain of the email and close the letter. Um, but on another view, I would tell no, you just attach the letter that you're talking about. Otherwise, so, so, rather than saying it's a PhD, it's a true copy of that correspondence, which I would think would be everything, um, it's a PhD with a copy of X letter. What is the best way of doing that? So I get sort of conflicted on it. Mm. I think it depends. If it's just a covering email, mm. if you're really worried about it, somewhere in the affidavit, say, to the, you know, where correspondence has been sent with the covering email, the covering email has not been included to as long as truly it just says, here's a copy. Now, the reason you might need to put the email in is if the time was sent for some reason is important, then you should put the covering email in because sometimes that doesn't help. But otherwise, if it, if it really is a vanilla email that does nothing, it has no significance, the letter's what's important. I've seen that, that you know, you'd post what you're like. Well, at 4.55 p.m., I caused an email to be sent attaching a letter, yeah. and then they just exhibit the letter. Because you, you, there is evidence of that an email had been sent. And if there's nothing else that's relevant to the email, then that's fine. Yeah. Um, I was in a matter where it was actually helpful that someone had annexed the chain of emails um, because it had shown, uh, what was it? It was something to do with judicial review, and so it had shown what materials was taken into account by a decision maker. And because the decision maker had just written it into an email and said, uh, you know, I find, I've taken into account all of this material um, and I make this decision. 
and it was clear, it wasn't clear from the text what actual material had been taken in, into account, but in fact that decision was annexed with the following emails, and so it was clear that three documents had been emailed to the decision maker, and it was, it was clearly referenced there. So sometimes it's, it's helpful to see the whole chain of the email, um, but I think mean, it's just a judgment call. And another thing about the is if you're responding to an affidavit and the contract's already evidence, just refer to that copy. Mm. It's presumably it's right. You know, again, irritating having 10 copies of the same document exhibited in 10 different affidavits that becomes cumbersome and difficult. And the other, another, this is perhaps just a pet thing of mine, if you've got the same, the same the deponents where multiple affidavits have the exhibit sequential, don't reset it one again. Mm. Because as the advocate on, on your feet, you refer to the affidavit Smith exhibit three, the judge will say, which one? Mm. There's 10 of them. Mm. They all have the same exhibit number. Yeah, yeah don't, don't distract the judge with little irritating things like that. Yeah, yeah so, so in a sense, um, you really want to think about how how will this be presented in court? What is the most useful? Like, is it just cumbersome to have these useless covering emails? Then don't include them. You know, think about how that will present to a judge. Um, don't have every time you have a new email. Don't make don't include every single subsequent email if it's just, if it's replicated five times across five different affidavits. But just make it clear that's what you've done. Yeah. So the judge understands that's what you've done, and your opponents. Against self-evidence. 
Yeah, I do um, a bit of work for the state, and so they often have self-represented litigants um, against me. And you should take the view that you should be fair, um, not try and bully them. So if you are going to say, well, we, we think that your matter has poor prospects, be fair about it, say, but we recognise that you have a contract or something, and, and that is a valid contract, but we say that it's not enforceable for these reasons. You know, um, I think... Maybe, whereas maybe you wouldn't do that with correspondence to someone who's legally represented. You wouldn't put their best case forward. You wouldn't acknowledge their really strong points. Um, you just go hard. Whereas for a representative, uh, an unrepresented litigant, I think you should be kind of fair and just be very objective and just say, well, these are the facts. Uh, and, and your arguments at its highest are, as I understand it, this. And uh, for these reasons, we still think you have a poor process. But get your own legal advice, that kind of thing. Mm. I had a self-reliant um, situation recently where it's a mass court um, strathpine and the self-reliant um, was a bit, I thought I'd do the right thing, but then I was like, I'm very not. He stood up and he said, um, oh, Your Honour, um, she pointed to me and said she ignored me outside the courtroom and didn't try and speak to me about my matter, which is so I just didn't see him, like, not really, like, <laughs> where he was or anything. I didn't, didn't um, and I didn't see it take back by that because I don't think Joe really cares. Mm. And then um, her and I looked at me for an explanation. And I said, oh, you know, I just simply didn't see him, but here we are. And then um, he, again, insisted that he tried to talk to me outside the room to resolve it mm. and seeking an explanation. And it was a blatant, like, it was really mm. bizarre. But then the judge actually looked at me and said, was like, is this true? Mm. Why didn't you attempt to resolve this outside? And I'm trying not to look like I'm, you know, a bully lawyer or something like that. So I'm drawing up politics to sit see. Mm. And um, unfortunately, that wasn't the end of the issue. It just mm. sort of kept going. I don't know whether the bachelor was having a bad day mm. um, or whether I should have been, I don't know whether I should have uh, said more or. Probably. Mm. I think the way to deal with that is to say, as your honour knows, it is impermissible to give evidence from the bar table. But you've asked me a direct question, so I'll answer it directly. Yeah. Uh, we did not have any discussions about it, so the applicant, whatever it is, did not approach me. And mm. I had no idea who it was, so I couldn't have approached mm. the applicant. Don't be backwards about mm. correcting something like yeah. that. Yeah. But you've got to be careful. You're not supposed to give evidence from the bar table. You've got an opponent, self credit or otherwise, who's making stuff up and saying from the bar table. You need to be polite by affirming your response. Mm. I just want to seem petty. I was just trying to be like, okay, I'm not saying man, I couldn't be grabbing. I just thought it was not about being active to that approach, especially because everyone actually seemed to be like a bit cranky with me. So I kind of like, you know, and so she was clearly trying to get an explanation as to why you hadn't converted in advance. And so if it was that the applicant never approached you, you never spoke, you didn't recognise him, you never spoke to him, then that puts in context what the applicant is saying when he said she ignored me because he didn't actually make an effort, <laughs> that kind of thing, to get a, get a picture. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe next time something like that happens, I, I 
I'd urge that you respond in you know, something along the lines that we've suggested, but then add to it. But you want to have that to adjourn ten minutes to run a discussion now. Yeah. That'll diffuse it because the judge will go, okay, fair enough. Go out, come back, and so it was a waste of time. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very good. Mm -hmm. How important is it to know the decision makers, the judges? Um, like how much, if at all, do you adapt your approach depending on the judges if you're going to be appearing before? Oh, it's just, it's just. There was one of our judges who was infamous for hating anyone who read an affidavit that was filed 4pm the evening before the application. And anyone that knew the judge knew that, and you always had copies. So you, you identified at the beginning, it was filed last time, but I've got a copy for you here. And I shouldn't laugh, but this unfortunately one of my opponents he and his solicitor didn't know that and they did do that and the judge had some words uh said said some words to them about that and the the judge couldn't find a copy of the affidavit because it was too late to get to the judge and um of course on the other side had, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he bent down under the bar table to the side. The judge didn't see that that had happened and said firmly to the counsel, Where's your instruction, sister? And all he heard was like, <laughs> <laughs> And I knew that. <laughs> um, sorry, I'll drop water everywhere. He was very fine. <laughs> <laughs> things were very well familiar. But <laughs> so things like that you should definitely know. And it's in fact one of the reasons why I suspect we see it in practice directions now. Yes. Telling you about that. But that's the type of stuff you should be conscious of. But otherwise, the laws are all the cases are what they are, the legislation says what it says, be there ready to argue. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it's helpful and you know just all about being persuasive all about you know if, if you can deliver your submissions the way the judge likes to hear it then obviously you're going to be listened to more i knew that one judge um was quite slow and liked to think about things and didn't like it when people um just rattling on about their submissions they um the judge preferred that you were slow if you said oh could i take your honor to paragraph five of my submissions you wait the judge will look and then the judge will look up. But if you're, if you go, oh, I'll take your arm to the paragraph five, and then I'll take your arm to this case over here and this other case over here, and they it just yeah. confuse them and they hate Watch them. your audience. Yeah. That's precisely right. Watch them. And if you ask them to read something, let them read it. Yeah. Okay, I think that, that'll conclude. We'll probably hang around for a little bit to answer more questions. Um, but we hope you found that that was informative. Where, um, we hope that you can hold on to that checklist in the future if it just helps you to um, like calm your nerves and, and know that you're uh, well prepared and have everything ready to go for. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.